So glad to see you here with us today. Thanks to our young people for stepping in and leading our worship this morning. I always like to see uh, young folks using their giftedness and abilities that God's given to them to worship and lead us in worship. We're certainly thankful um, for them this morning for doing that. There's some uh, familiar faces with us that we that uh, haven't seen in a little while. So glad to have some of you back. I know with COVID. Uh, the last few weeks, it's been interesting seeing folks um, kind of coming back, and we're so glad to have some of you back with us this morning. But some of you are maybe here for the very first time. You've never been here at Grace before, or maybe it's been a very long time since you've been here at Grace. And we would like to welcome you and invite you to use the QR code that is printed for you on a little card in the pew in front of you. It looks like the one on the screen behind me. And what you do is you just scan that with your smartphone and it'll take you to a place where you can just answer a couple of questions for us. And our goal is very simple to answer any questions that you have about our ministry and to introduce ourselves a little bit more particularly to you. And uh, some of your questions you may be able to find answered for you um, at our website, which is gracenc.org. And as Pastor Brian mentioned in the beginning of the service, I want to also just comment and thank you for your continued financial support of the ministry. Um, as, you, as you know, as you can probably guess, most ministries, and ours included, it's always interesting to see how our recent circumstances have impacted our giving. And so we just thank you for so many that have been faithful in your, in your financial support to the work of the ministry. And uh, we would invite you to continue to please continue to give so we can press on with what the Lord has called us to do here at Grace. And you can give in the giving boxes in the back, or you can also uh, give online. This morning, I want to start to ask you a question to begin, get your mind working a little bit. I don't know how introspective of a person you are. Um, I tend to be somebody who is a little on the introspective side. I like to think and contemplate and, and uh, spend a lot of time uh, reflecting on the world. That's something that I enjoy studying as a pastor, studying and doing all that. That's it doesn't get any better than that. I love that part of, of ministry. But maybe you're like me, and there's a positive in that, but it also brings a negative to that mindset sometimes, is do you ever in your quiet times alone, maybe go back through your mind and consider or think about past failures that you have experienced in your life? Now, I'm guessing that I'm not alone to say that if my mind goes into neutral for any length of time, two seconds or more, it wouldn't take me a very long time to come up with a list of things that I have gotten wrong in my life, that I have failed, that I have practiced misjudgment in something, or I have made a bad decision. We all can relate to that. One writer said, and I've often lived by this, if you're not failing, you're not trying. And there's a sense in which life, as we try certain things, life just brings failure to us. You don't get everything, everything right every time. But we also have to remember that not all failures are the same. Some failures are, in fact, moral in nature. And these moral failures can bring with them consequences that are very painful, and sometimes these consequences last, last for a significant period of time. Sometimes they last for years and years and years. But we also have to remember this about failure. Very few failures are fatal. In other words, there are very few failures that we make in life that would derail us forever. Forever. 
Yes, they bring consequences, of course. But sometimes when we think about this issue of failure, we have to understand that not all failure is the same, but we also have to understand that not all failure is fatal. Now that leads us to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we are beginning to lay the groundwork, the foundation for our study on the life of David. But before we get to David, we need to really understand where the people of Israel are in their current circumstances. And chapter 12 is a uh, very interesting chapter for many reasons that we'll get into in just a moment. But just to briefly say that as we come to this chapter, the people of Israel, the people of God, as chosen people in the Old Testament, they have made a very, very big mistake. They have made a very real act of misjudgment. It was a colossal failure. However, their failure in trusting God and their failure in resting in the, the uh, sovereignty of God and trusting in the sovereignty of God to raise up leaders and judges as he had been doing for, for several generations now, they demanded that God give them a king. And as we have studied previously, that the request to have a king in and of itself was not the sin per se, because even the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy laid the groundwork for if and when you come to the place that you ask me for a king, this is what that king has to look like. This is what he has to do, not physically look like, but this is how he has to live. This is how he has to lead. These are the requirements for this person to be in this position of leadership. So the problem inherently wasn't that they had asked for a king. The problem was that their motivation for wanting this king was very simply that they wanted to fit in and be like all of the other nations. They also wanted a human being to begin to bear the responsibility of protecting them and of going before them and battle and fighting their fights for them and fighting their wars for them. They no longer were willing to rest and trust in God's provision, they, in a sense, took matters into their own hands. They went to Samuel, and they demanded for them a king. As they have been in previous generations, the people of God find themselves at a crossroad. They had sinned against God. However, they were not without hope, and they were not without opportunity to follow after God. They were not forsaken. God had not thrown his hands up in the air and said to them, fine, if you want a king, then you're finished. Go ahead. Have a great time. And there is an interesting phrase that they are inherently not forsaken that I want you to think about. It's on the screen at the bottom there is these very simple words. But now, what are they going to do now? See, here's the problem with past failures, past mistakes, past sins, is that no matter how many times we play them over and over and over again in our minds and we dwell on them and we think about them, the simple truth is you can't go back in time and change that. But what you can change is what are you going to do about it now? They had sinned against God and asking for a king, but what are they going to do now? In fact, that idea occurs four times in this chapter. I'm just going to highlight them briefly, and then we'll get into the um, nitty-gritty of the text a little bit. But in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 2, And now, behold the king, he walks before you. 
In verse 7, And now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. Verse 13, And now, behold the king whom you have chosen. And then in verse 16, Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. What were they going to do now? Well, to set the context of chapter 12, let's go back a few verses into chapter 11. We're going to summarize 9, 10, and 11 in just a moment to tell you where we are. We studied chapter 8 a couple last week, last week or so, but we're going to summarize 9, 10, and 11 in just a moment. But we think about the end of chapter 11. What has happened is Saul has delivered God's people from their enemies. He has defeated the Ammonites. And after this fight, in verse 12 of chapter 11, it says, Then the people said to Saul, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. In other words, words those that had opposed Saul's being appointed as king, we want them put to death. But Saul the newly appointed king, says, Not a man shall be put to death, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. True, Saul, but you're going to hold to that mindset when you're going to think that way? Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, let's just go back for just a moment. You don't have to turn there, but just let me summarize chapter 9 very quickly. Is In chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, we are now told the account of when Samuel first meets Saul personally. This man that God is going to anoint in chapter 10 to be the first king over Israel. And Saul is a very unique person. In fact, in the first couple of verses of chapter 9, we are told that there is something very unusual and particular about this man Saul, who is going to be king. He is a handsome young man, verse 2 tells us. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He was a good-looking chap. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. I mean, get the image of chapter 9 when Samuel is going to be introduced to Saul for the very first time when God sovereignly brings these two men together. And what stands out about Saul is, man, he is tall. He is handsome. He would be everything that you would look to in a king, a person who would be your deliverer, a man you would want to trust. Well, in chapter 10, we are then told that Samuel actually anoints him as king. In verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured, poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, he is anointed king in chapter 10. In verse 11, right after this anointing, he delivers on this promise of delivering God's people from their enemies. Things seem to be going pretty well. And now we come to chapter 12, 
And at the end of chapter 11, you in a sense have the coronation of Saul. He is now officially king. But let's put ourselves in Samuel's shoes for just a moment. Because Samuel now is going to address the nation for really the last time as the leader of this nation. Remembering that out of all of the judges, Samuel stands out uniquely in a couple of regards. And one being that he was a person that had a much broader scope of leadership over the nation than the previous judges. When God would raise up a judge, it was usually in a very isolated occasion, an isolated event. But Samuel was this man who has led the people. He is a man who has had a widespread influence over the nation of Israel. And he is going to be asked to now step aside out of this position of leadership, and he is handing the mantle off to Saul. So think about that for just a moment and listen to how Samuel begins this address to the people of God in a sense as his farewell address to them as their judge. He's still going to serve as their prophet, but he is stepping outside of this position of leadership. Listen to what verses 1 through 5 say of chapter 12. And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. You now have your king. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. Notice they are now with the people. They are no longer over the people, because they have also been removed from their position of leadership, rightfully so. He says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now, let's, let's hit the pause button for just a moment. Let's think about Samuel's life and think about where Samuel is right now as he's addressing these people. If you think back in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel and verse 24, we find this description. And when she, this referencing Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, and she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for the child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there." In chapter 2, the very next chapter, in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. This is all that Samuel has ever known. All he has known his entire life is serving God and following the Lord's direction, being the leader over God's people. This has been Samuel's life work. Now, notice the contrast as Samuel is standing before the people and he's going to address them, he is described as old and gray. 
the wearied lines on his face from the concerns of leadership, his fatigue from years of ministry, his years of investment, his time of giving to the people of God again and again and again for years and years and years. And you've got Samuel, this old-looking gray-haired man, standing next to their new king. Tall, handsome. But there's a bigger difference that's even more important. Not only does Samuel stand in contrast to Saul regarding him physically, there is also some other very real contrast that we're going to see in Samuel's life. One being his contrast between himself and his own children. I mean, let's face it, Eli's sons, they were a train wreck. Samuel's sons, no better. Makes you wonder about ministry kids, doesn't it? If I ever preach at a pastor's conference, I'm going to preach that, like... Be careful, the pressures of being a ministry kid, I guess. But he's also standing in great contrast to the people of Israel. He's going to talk to them about their pattern of behavior for decades. Take matters into their own hands, sin against God. God brings an oppressor against them. They repent, God delivers them. And just rinse and repeat and do that again and again and again and again for generations. And yet Samuel has remained faithful. He's remained committed to these people. He has remained steadfast in his leadership. But he stands in contrast to some other folks, one also being there, and that being Saul. Yes, he is in contrast with him physically, but if you know anything about what's going to happen with Saul as king, it is not going to be a very pleasant ride. And by the way, the kings that will follow, other than David being a watershed king and also his son Solomon, after that it gets pretty ugly. Other than a few exceptions, the kings of Israel are far from men that should be emulated. So here he is, this old man, relinquishing his mantle of ministry, more importantly, his mantle of leadership and Samuel's years of dedication are now coming in a sense to a close and the government is going to be bigger than they have ever experienced before and Samuel is laying the groundwork for his departure. Now I want you to continue on and see what Samuel says to them. He says in verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. In other words, okay, before God and before your anointed king, I want you to do something for me. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Notice what he's doing publicly. He says, I I am giving you now the opportunity, name for me the moments that I have defrauded you, that I have taken from you, that I have stolen from you for my own good. We know that part of the problem with the sons of Samuel was that they were prone to taking bribes. And he even asked them, name for me one time that I have ever taken a bribe from you. Now, here's one of the things that I know about criticism is that usually criticism is given in the dark shadows of the corners of a room. Most people are not bold enough, don't have the guts to make a criticism to someone face-to-face, let alone to do it in a public place. 
But I don't think Samuel is playing on human psychology here as much as this is this plea that he has with the people. I want to end well. Where have I failed you? And by the way, I would suggest to you that the reason that I would take that position is because when the people come to Samuel and they say to him, name for us a king, his first reaction was, where have I failed? What have I done? Apparently my leadership has not been very effective because now the people are demanding a king. And remember what God told him, hey, they're not rejecting you ultimately, they're actually rejecting me. Because Samuel, in his own questioning of the people, name for me, what have I done? What have I stolen? How have I defrauded you? Now, let's be clear, Samuel was not imperfect. I'm sure there was a guy sitting back in the corner with his arms crossed saying, well, I remember he was short-tempered with me once 12 years ago. I'm sure that guy existed. I'm sure that there was somebody who had some kind of imagined slight in their mind that Samuel had done, that he purposely ignored them, or he purposely did X, Y, or Z. That, that's always true. But he says, is there any accusation against me that I have acted immorally, that I have acted in a way that would displease God, and I am asking you publicly, I want to end my ministry well and make it right. I will come back and I will make this correct if I have failed you, if I have defrauded you. What have I done? I want to, re I want to end well. He says, I will restore it to you. And they said in verse 4, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. In other words, I have not failed you. And they said, he is witness. Samuel, you have been nothing but a person, a leader of absolute integrity. You know, when I read through these opening verses, I think it is a very healthy reminder for all of us that integrity is certainly of great value when it comes to a person in leadership. But see, humans don't think that way. When we think about how do we want to pick a leader, they would look at Saul and they would look at Samuel, this gray-haired old man versus this tall, handsome fellow, and they would say, man, give us the tall, good-looking guy. I mean, how many times in our presidential debates have you heard people say, well, I just think he looks more presidential. What does that mean? Well, I just think he fits the role. He looks a certain way, but he has no integrity. So we're going to put that person in leadership. That's why in the New Testament, it puts emphasis when it comes to positions in the church of leadership on a person's integrity and character, not his ability or physical attributes, never mentioned. But don't, people don't think that way. They think, man, give us the tall, good-looking guy. We apply that to marriage. We could spend a long time on that, but I won't. But we judge people based on their externals, and Samuel is declaring himself, not arrogantly, just with this sense of humility, have I ever failed you? And they said, no, you have been nothing but a man of integrity, a person of Christ-like character. So Samuel, I would suppose, takes a little bit of a deep breath and says, okay, Praise the Lord, but there's more that I would like to share. And it gets a little less rosy from here on out. Notice what he says in verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness 
Now, who is this Lord? Well, let me describe him for you a little bit. The one who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. It always goes back to the Exodus in so many regards, doesn't it? And Samuel reminds them, do you not remember what God did for your fathers when he brought you out of the land of Egypt? Now, therefore, verse 7, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. Okay, we've settled this matter of interpersonal relationship, but now he says, there is something that I want to plead with you about and listen to you with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds that the Lord has performed for you and your fathers. Go back and remember everything that God has done for you. And Samuel, in pleading for them, is trying to get them to go back in their history and remember God's wondrous deliverance. Notice verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them to dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And forget here, by the way, isn't just a slip of the mind. This is a purposeful, just outright rejection. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God said, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. He said in verse 19 and 20 of that same chapter, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. There was these warnings that you should not forget God. Do not forget what God has done for you. But they forgot the Lord their God. And what happened? He sold them into the hand of Sisera, uh, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord. Notice this pattern. They're, They're brought into these oppressors and they cry out to the Lord. And they said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and Asherah. They had fallen into idolatry, violated the very core of the Ten Commandments. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, which is another word for Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. There is this historical pattern that whenever you fell into oppression, you cried out to God, and God was faithful. God brought a judge to deliver you, Samuel being one of them. And he says again, and again, and again, when you repented, you lived in safety. Verse 12. And even when you saw Nahash, this is chapter 11, even the most recent history, the king of the Ammonites came against you and you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God was your king. Think about what you've done. God has shown himself to be faithful over and over again. And now, behold, the king you have chosen and whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. This is what you have done. But what are you going to do now? You know, I get, I get feedback sometimes, and you probably get asked this question too. You know, why was God so harsh in the Old Testament? I mean, he just seemed to just drop the hammer on people. My response to that is, really? The long-suffering and mercy of God failing again and again 
And again, he rises up a deliverer, Moses and Aaron and the judges, and God shows his, his mercy to them again and again. And what do they say? We want a king just like everybody else. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but I'm thankful that God's mind doesn't function the way most of humanity works. Because most of us would respond with something like, hey, if you want a king, here he is and go for it. You're on your own. If you want a human king, somebody that you're going to be responsible for, then just go your own way, but don't, hey, don't, don't ask me when you get in trouble. But notice verse 14. But if you will fear the Lord, it's not over for you. Nation of Israel, hear me. It's not over for you. If you will fear him and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well with you. He's not done with you. He hasn't forsaken you. He didn't write the people of God off. He didn't do away with the nation of Israel and just leave them to their own devices. But he does say to them, look, you have to understand that your king, this person that you have now asked for, and he is now over you in leadership, he has to be one who is seeking after the Lord. Yes, you now politically look like all the other nations of the land, but your king has to look different. He has to be a man who fears God and serves God and lives for God. He has to be a man of integrity a person like that of, of Samuel that we have seen earlier. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You don't get a free pass. Now, therefore, stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? He stops and asks them a question. Let me just remind them. Okay, where are we in the agricultural year? Are we not in the wheat harvest? Now, that seems weird. Why would he say that? Well, he wanted them to understand that this was somewhere around May or June. And this was a time of the year, understanding that they were driven by agriculture. Their life depended on the rainy seasons, their life depended on their crops growing. And this time of year, when it was time to harvest the grain, this was a time that rain, substantial rain, was unheard of. And he says in verse 17, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. I wonder if asking for a king was okay. He's hammering this home. You sinned egregiously. You failed egregiously. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel, understanding again that this was a period of time during the course of a year that rain would not be something that would be the normal event at this time. And when the raindrops begin to fall, there is this collective fear that falls upon them. They fear God and they fear Samuel. Well, why? Well, first of all, I, I think there's two important aspects to this sudden rainstorm that happens. Number one, it is a clear demonstration that God was still in their presence. 
That when Samuel cries out to God and he prays to them, send rain and thunder, that when it happens, there is this collective awe and amazement of fear and understanding that they are still the people of God. They are still in the presence of God, that God had not forsaken them. He wasn't leaving them to their own devices. But this does something else. It also demonstrates that Samuel was authentically speaking for God. He was still their prophet. It authenticated him. He wasn't playing games with them. This wasn't simply a meeting outside in the Rose Garden somewhere at the White House or in Gilgal. This wasn't just this collective political event. This was a very serious matter that Samuel wants them to understand that, yes, they had a king, but this king needed to follow God. They needed to follow God. And if they were to do that, it would be well with them. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants, for the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. You think? But at least at this moment in time, there's an attitude, a spirit of repentance. It's not over for them. God's not done with them. But what do they do now? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're on the heels of a very poor, sinful decision. And maybe you're looking at your life right now and this is a collective mess of broken pieces. What do I do now? Is God done with me? Has God forsaken me? Am I finished? Well, I think Samuel's instruction as he finished out this chapter is not only applicable to the people of Israel, but it's applicable to us. Notice what Samuel tells them to do. And Samuel said to the people, verse 20, do not be afraid. (laughs) I love this play, be afraid, but don't be afraid. We've talked about this before. Don't give in to ungodly fear but be living by righteous fear that understands God's place in the world, his place in your life. You have done, you have done all this evil. You're right. There's the first step, by the way, in getting your life in order. Admit it. And they admit it here. And Samuel points it, they admit it, and then Samuel says, you're right, you have absolutely done. It's like counseling. Most people just want you to tell them that what they're doing is okay. They just want you to affirm that their choices in their life are okay. And when you get in trouble is when you look at a counselee or somebody you're counseling, counseling is just a fancy word for discipleship. You're discipling somebody and you tell them, you sinned against God. Often it's over right there. They don't want to hear that. But these people are repentant. And Samuel says, you're right. You have done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all of your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. Don't do that. It's the American dream, right? Follow after what's temporary. Pursue what shines. Pursue what's popular. Don't do that. Don't go after things that are empty. Solomon's teaching in Ecclesiastes, right? Don't go after vain things. Why? Because you're wasting your time. They've done this before. 
For the Lord, listen, oh, if you, if you fell asleep, wake up for verse 22. Best verse in the chapter. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Maybe he should, but he didn't. He has not forsaken you. Why? Because they are great, wonderful people. No, for his great namesake. God is not done with you because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, pause there for a moment and put your name in there. Because it pleased the Lord to make you a child of God for his purposes, for his pleasure, and for his great namesake. Isn't that amazing? I think it is. And he says, look, God has not forsaken you. Moreover, as for me, verse 23, he gets personal. He says, for, uh, he says, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Even Samuel's not turning his back on them. He says, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only, verse 24, you can kind of read the urgency in his words here. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Don't forget them. But then verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, his forgiveness is not forsaking you, is not a license to sin. But if you still choose to live wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Now, that's a lengthy chapter to bring us to the closing moments of, the time, of our time together today to simply ask this question. What can we learn from this? None of us can change the past. None of us can go back into our reflective memory, our introspection, and think about the mistakes and failures, even moral ones that we have made. None of us can go back and change that. We, we can't. We would probably like to. I know I would. But rather than being consumed with this ungodly kind of obsession with past failures, how do we then move forward? What do we do now? And let me leave you with some concluding um, lessons that I think we can learn from this chapter. Number one, integrity matters. Samuel led with conviction and he led with character. Saul is going to prove to be just the opposite. The Israelites, in many regards, did not live with character. Samuel's own sons, as I mentioned, did not live a life of character. And yet, here's the reality of where we live. God has given each and every individual person gifts and abilities that we should refine and we should develop. That's true. And I think about this from a parental perspective. Where do we invest the majority of our energy? In developing our children's abilities? Or in developing their character? You see, each and every one of us have a limited set of ability. There are abilities I do not have, many of them. There are things that I am not inherently talented in and never will be. But no matter how short my list of abilities may be, either that's a real, actual short list or it's a, an imagined short list, very often our giftedness, we actually just can't see it because it comes naturally to us. We don't even recognize that it's a gift. I have this conversation with my daughter all the time. What do you mean people are afraid to talk and sing in front of people? I don't understand. 
Then the next sentence, but I'm not gifted in anything. That's a gift. So we understand that we're all limited in giftedness, but here's the beauty. You don't have to be majestically, wonderfully gifted to be a person of character. What matters to you more, your integrity or your external appearance that you look like you have it all together because of your abilities and all the things that you can do? What matters more when it comes to us as parents in the hearts and lives of our children? I, 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 I far more am concerned about their character than I am with their abilities. Now, what about you? You might not even be a parent. Say, so, ooh, I'm off the hook. Where do you spend your time? I, I love reading leadership books, and I love reading books about how to be a better speaker, and I love reading books on how to be a better writer. I love that. I enjoy that. But at the end of the day, if my weight of reading is all about developing my abilities with no thought to developing my character, something is really wrong. And so I think when we listen to the words of Samuel, that we ought to, our ears ought to perk up a little bit and ask ourselves, if I was to stand in a public place and say, lay against me an accusation against me that would be true and accurate, I wonder how many of us would be stapled to the wall because our integrity just wouldn't stand up to that. And Samuel understood the value of integrity. Samuel lived that integrity. Samuel demonstrated that integrity perfectly. No. But he was, what the New Testament calls, he was a man who was above reproach. Integrity matters. Number two, God is our ultimate judge. Now, I put this one in here for this reason. Because Samuel understood something, that there could have been a person that maybe had an accusation that they laid against them. This has happened to me as a pastor a time or two or ten or a thousand is that somebody will say something like, I know why you did that. I know your motive. And it's like, I don't even know my own motive. How do you know? I don't even know my own heart. Like, well, you, you know, you ignored me on purpose. Really? Come on. I had a lady 20 years ago wouldn't speak to me because I didn't smile to her in the hallway. Really? Okay, guilty, I suppose. It might be that I was preoccupied. It might be that I was something more important at that moment then, sorry, but then you at that second. And at the end of the day, that human being could judge and say, you know, he's just a rude person. Okay. But at the end of the day, God will make that judgment. Only God knows our sinful hearts perfectly. Only God truly knows what was my motive in that. And it's not to say, I've said this before, as your pastor, I'll continue to say, as long as I am your pastor, I promise you one thing, I will fail you at some point. But it never will be purposeful, purposeful or vindictive or with, a, or with a reason that is ungodly. And Samuel was the same. And Samuel, at the end of the day, while he wanted the input from the people that were under his leadership, at the end of the day, God was the one who would judge him and hold him accountable. Number three, very quickly, God is not simply an escape route in your life. I feel like at times, that's the way it seems the people of Israel lived. Maybe not always, but there were moments in which, you know what, the mindset is simply... 
hey, if I mess up, God has to forgive me. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. That's presumptuous. That's sinful. That's wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way, should we sin more so that grace may abound? Heaven forbid. God isn't just simply our escape route when we sin and choose sinful things. We have to understand that God is our judge, that God is our Heavenly Father. He's not simply a, an escape route. And the fourth and final one is arguably the most important one that I want you to leave with today. And that is God's grace abounds even in our failures. Even the big ones. Not all failures are the same, making a wrong turn, Driving into church this morning is not a moral failure, but some failures are moral. But we understand that God's grace, even when we have failed Him in the past, is available to you. Don't live your life derailed by yesterday's failures. In fact, the two little words that we began this with 30, 40 minutes ago is, but now... Maybe you failed miserably, horribly, colossally. What are you going to do now? You might not, let me rephrase that, you cannot go back and change it. You might not be able to prevent every one of the consequences to come your way. That's true. But there is a choice before you. Will you fear God? Serve him, obey him, and you will live in safety. Free from every trial and hardship? No. But I will experience this sweet fellowship with a heavenly father who is ready and willing to forgive you. So while failure can oftentimes feel fatal, Especially, let me, this is off the top of my head to our teenagers. Please, please get this through your minds. As a teenager, you're going to fail. And don't let those failures become fatal to the point that you allow them to influence and impact you for the rest of your life. Get help, get support, get people in your life that can help you. So while failure may at times feel fatal, God is ready to forgive you and he's ready to restore you. The choice is yours. You failed in the past, but what about now? Will you live obediently beginning right now, fearing, serving, worshiping, loving your forgiving Heavenly Father? Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to share these verses today. It's an encouragement to my own soul to just read even verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people. Times, if we're honest, we feel like we should just throw our hands up in despair and walk away. And we feel maybe you've left us, that you have forsaken us. But God, we know that those feelings are on our end, not because you have forsaken us. It's not true. So Lord, I pray this morning that there is someone here today that is struggling either with a failure and working through that, that they would get the help that they need. And maybe there's someone here today that has never come to a saving knowledge of Christ and what being a Christian really means and how one can know for sure that they are truly a part of God's family. I pray if there's one here this morning, they would get that answered even today before they leave.
Thank you again for the privilege of speaking today, and I pray that it would take root in our souls and our hearts, and that we would apply what we've heard and do it for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a great day.